Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Before I get to my guest, um, about as important a subject as exists currently, I just want to remind you that the first hour, I discussed a number of things. One of them was the New York Times headline implying that the president lied when he said that there were no casualties at the Iraq base, no American casualties. And in the second paragraph, it is noted, the casualties only became known after he announced that. And all the New York Times people writing in said, what a pathological liar the president is. Not the Times, the president. Gives you the intellectual level of New York Times readers. Okay, all Dennis Prager here. Uh, I just mentioned to my distinguished guest, Sally Pipes, that it's been many years that I have been interviewing you. Uh, And I, I look to you when we have medical issues things doing to have to do with health care because you're so knowledgeable. Sally Pipes, this is the official bio. She's president, CEO, and Thomas W. Smith Fellow in health care policy at the Pacific Research Institute. And this is a little uh, amazing. A San Francisco-based think tank founded in seven, 1979. She went in San Francisco. She does wear a veil, just for the record. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so where are you living in, in in northern california or southern california well my husband charles kessler is a, who's a friend of yours too yes indeed Dennis, um he our house is in pasadena and we have an office now in pasadena we've had it for about three and a half years um, our main office is in san francisco i spend probably a week and a half a month in san francisco as little time as possible because you know, I have to Uber to work. It's not safe to walk to work just from Knob Hill down to the financial district because of the homeless situation, the mess on the streets, the, the drugs, the needles, everything. So Pasadena seems very calm and quiet compared to San Francisco. Before I get to, to your very important to short book here, very important, I, I'm curious to know, does the average San Francisco leftist know this situation, and if so, what or whom do they blame? Well, they blame people, Dennis, like you and like me. I mean, they 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 think that government can solve this problem. More and more money from the from the city government, from the federal government, from state government is going to solve the the problem of the homeless. Even Gavin Newsom said he's going to you know bring in legislation to provide more money. The more Pouring more money at the homeless situation, either in Los Angeles or in San Francisco, is not going to solve the problem. And, you know, the, the, the issue is that most of these people who are homeless, many of them don't want to live in a shelter or whatever. Many of them are mentally ill or drug addicts. So the number of people who are, have lost their job who are living on the street is very small. So we have to be able to deal with, with the issue of who these people are and how do you how do you deal with them and take care of them? Because, as you know, many of the institutions that kept these people for many years were shut down, and these people came out on the on, on the street. Even last night in L.A., going to um, a restaurant, an, uh, a, a homeless person came up to our car just on um, Alameda, and I was saying, Charles, drive through the light. You know, I mean, you don't know. I, how do you know if this person has a gun or, or whatever? But he was wandering around our car at the stoplight. Wow. All right, to your book. The book is False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. So that's the thing. So uh, I don't expect you to know the answer because your arena is is health care. But I'm just off the top of my head, perhaps my uh, your husband or my spouse, Alan. <laughs> yes. Well, I have two spouses, my wife and Alan. Yes. Uh can can tell me of the of the six remaining democratic nominees who has come out for medicare for all so obviously bernie sanders elizabeth warren has boot have Buttigieg has not correct 
Well, you can't really say he hasn't. He he supports the public option, uh, which is a government-run insurance plan that would run, would uh, run, uh, compete against private insurers. And he has said this is the way he wants Medicare for all who want it. But he does come out and say that if the public option doesn't get everybody covered, he still is going to support Medicare for all. So this would be a stepping stone approach, just like Elizabeth Warren is sort of, she's saying, I'm not for Medicare for all right now. Within the first 100 days, I would introduce a public option. The third year of my presidency, those people would love uh, government-run health care so much that then we would have Medicare for all. All right, wait. Who promised to take away people's private care? Well, Bernie Sanders is the the one who has been talking about this for years, but only in 2016 when he was running against Hillary Clinton for the nomination did he really start pushing for Medicare for all, no private coverage, and of course, it would be free. So who's left? Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar, what's her stance? Do you know? Well, Amy Klobuchar... By the way, it turns out Sally knew all of this. Yeah, <laughs> we really freak. didn't need you guys. I gotta just say for the record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, because I I'm a freak. I live and breathe this 24 okay. hours a day. Amy Klobuchar has said said in the last debate on January uh, 14th um, in Des Moines that she's not for completely getting rid of private insurance because you know, Dennis, 180 million Americans have employer sponsored coverage. 71 percent of them rate it as good or as excellent. So Amy Klobuchar says, we couldn't afford to just shut down the whole private sector and have put everyone in a government plan. So she's more for allowing competition between um, the um, uh, uh, employer-sponsored coverage and sort of not really you know, moving to single payer. When the, the people who say public option, I, I don't understand public option. I don't want to take I don't want to spend money on private health care so I will be insured by the government. Right. So the public option, if you go back, the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, will be 10 years old on March 23rd. When it was in the House and Nancy Pelosi was the speaker, she pushed for the public option. They put it in the bill. When the bill went to the Senate, they took out the public option. The public option being a government insurance plan that would compete against private insurers. And as you know, Dennis, the government plan would be priced cheaper than private insurers can offer coverage. And so private insurers would be crowded out. Exactly. And we, we would all be left in the in, in a government Medicare for so, all single so payer. It, so it's really uh, a, 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 I don't want to say fraud, but... It's sort of a cover for what is going to really happen. It, it Public is, option and 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 uh, Medicare for all are are almost synonymous. They are. The one is one is like full in, as Bernie Sanders said in my first week of being the president. I would introduce Medicare for all, wipe out all private insurance. He's admitted. He admitted several months ago it would cost thirty to forty trillion dollars over ten years. I know that doesn't relate to our income level, but thirty to forty trillion over ten years. He has now come out and said, "Well, that number's too big. I don't. I don't want to talk about it." But of course, there would be increased taxes um, on the wealthy, on financial institutions. Anyone earning over 29000 would face a 4% increase in their income tax. There would be a new payroll tax. All of these things, which are going to be very expensive, and as Warren has said, 1 to 2 million people who are in the insurance industry would all lose their jobs. Sanders said we have to have a government transition program to retrain these people because Sanders thought they could work in the auto insurance industry. These are not transferable skills. So... I have another question that gnaws at me. If the government does literally Medicare for all, it means it will pay hospitals and doctors Medicare prices. Exactly. They're not enough for most hospitals and doctors to live on. Well, exactly. I mean, Bernie Sanders' plan, and he has said this when, when questioned. He said, well, you know, we're going to have to, you know, in order to cover part of the cost of this. Charles Blayhouse has said if you doubled all the corporate income taxes, all the personal income taxes, it wouldn't be enough to cover the cost of Medicare for all. But Sanders said, well, we're going to have to tie doctors' rates to Medicare rates, which are about 40% below what doctors get paid for treating private patients. My own OBGYN said, I lose money on Medi-Cal patients, I break even on Medicare, 
and I make my money for treating people like you who have private uh, coverage. So what is going to happen? If docs are going to be basically civil servants, public servants, a lot of them will retire early. We've seen that under Obamacare. And I believe that the best and brightest kids who've traditionally in this country gone into medicine, there's a lot of competition, they're not going to go into medicine if they think they're going to be have the government determine Well, they'll never be able to pay their medical school bills. No, but then Sanders, of course, wants medical Oh, that'll be free. Med- oh, yeah, I That'll forgot. be free. That'll That's be free. Right. College yeah. will be free. Medical school will be free. Free. We'll return with Sally Pipes. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. False premise, false promise. The disastrous reality of Medicare for All. The Dennis Prager Show. Okay, everybody. Some clarity on health care and the promise of Medicare for All. That's the new term, Medicare for All. Sally Pipes is the person. If I could go to one person on this ma- on this matter, it would be she, and it is she. President CEO, Healthcare Policy Pacific Research Institute. The book is False Premise, False Promise. It's brief. It's to the point. It's only 100 pages. And then 100 pages of footnotes. Right. <laughs> false Premise, False Promise. The Disastrous Reality of health, Medicare for All. So here's an example. All right. You, you're from Canada. You're originally Canadian. And you were at the Fraser Institute in, in British Columbia. So as uh, non-doctrinally as possible... Tell me about Canadian health care, or, or if I may, forgive me, I just want to tell you a brief anecdote. Uh, I am right now completely pain-free. I am incredibly lucky. I've had three back surgeries and 100% successful. I am pain-free. I work out three days a week. I'm fine. But there was a period the, that the sciatic was so painful that I was, I was wheeled at airports. I would be greeted with a wheelchair. This was a short period of time. So I gave a speech in Toronto. Woman is wheeling me. It's a very long distance between where the plane lands and and immigration. Right. So uh, she said, well, you know, you walk to the wheelchair. What's your, what's your issue? I said, well, I'm having, I'm having surgery on my, on my disc. I have bad sciatica and I'm in, you know, terrible pain when I walk. She says, oh, that me too. And I feel terrible. She's pushing me. And I said, well, uh, what did your MRI say? And she said, oh, that's scheduled for, uh, uh, I don't remember what she said, something either six weeks or six months from now. Right. I got an MRI the next day. And I thought that, is that telling that anecdote? It's absolutely telling. Back in the 40s, Tommy Douglas um, was premier of of Saskatchewan, the most socialist province in in Canada at the time. Um, He started pushing for uh, single payer and took over the hospitals and then the doctors. Ultimately, the Canadian government fully took over the health care system in 1984. All private coverage is banned for anything considered medically necessary. So things that aren't medically necessary would be LASIK surgery on your eyes, cosmetic surgery. But most things are um, considered medically necessary. The, um, so the government bans private coverage. The average wait last year, Dennis, from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist was 20.9 weeks. That's over five months. Back in 1993, two years after I left the Fraser Institute and moved to the U.S., it was 9.3 weeks. So when Bernie Sanders starts talking about the wonderful Canadian health care system, it's not wonderful because government determines it's only going to spend 11% of GDP on health care, whereas we, pers- we spend about uh, 18% of our GDP on health care. But you have to have ration care. The average wait in Canada from, to get an MRI is 11 weeks. I I get an MRI if I need one with you know within a couple of days we have competition and the other thing is that there's a very um, small number of MRIs CT scans government can't afford to provide them doctors work for themselves but the issue is they can there's only one payer and it's the government and the government doesn't pay quickly and the government says Dennis Prager is the very best um, orthopedic surgeon 
in Vancouver. I'm the very worst, but we get paid the same um, because that's the way when a socialist system works. My own mother died from colon cancer um, as a senior because when she thought she had colon cancer, she went to her primary care doctor, had an x-ray, and I said, Mom, you can't find colon cancer with an x-ray. And she called back, wanted me to call back. I said I wouldn't. She called back and he said, well, I'm sorry, but there are too many younger people on the waiting list waiting for a colonoscopy. So there's triage all the time. Triage, and it's rationed. And so she finally, six months later, when she'd lost 30 pounds, was hemorrhaging, went to the hospital in an ambulance, two days in the emergency room, two days in the transit lounge waiting for a bed in a ward. She got a colonoscopy. Waiting for a bed in the ward. I want people to understand this. And then All she right. got her, and she she died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. Terrible. It's cheaper. It's terrible. Of course it is. I want to understand. Uh, it's perfect that you're Canadian or Canadian American or Canadian originally. American. Yeah. I know, and I God bless you. I feel the same. But I I I want to understand something. I'm told all the time that on every in every poll, Canadians are uh, are approving of their health care. Right, and this is something you hear, as you say, all the time. But that's like if you don't need to see the doctor, and if you're younger, you probably don't. And you, you know, you if if you have to wait a year to get an appointment with a a dermatologist or whatever. But still, you you think it's fine. But n- the new polls out show that people 55 years of age and older who've been polled are very upset with with the quality of care. But I was with um, Lord Borwick of the UK, a Conservative um, Lord, last week, and he. Um, told me that the National Health Service, which has been around for since it's 71 years old, Britain, of course, allows private care to run parallel to their government program, but the government program, NHS, covers about 90% of Brits. But he said, you know, the, the, the weird thing is that there are long waits in the UK, a shortage of 100,000 doctors, nurses, and hospital workers, you know, people, the worst cancer survival rates five years out of any industrialized country. So why don't people hate the NHS? And it's because, it's, as Lord Borwick said, it's really become a religion. It's quasi-religious, and you can't criticize a religious institution. And um, so I think this is a thing that people are afraid to criticize something that isn't working. And uh, the other point is that the Canadian healthcare system has been in this transition to government takeover from the 40s to 84, uh, most young people don't know any different. I mean, as I say, 217,000 Canadians cross the border every year to pay out of pocket for an MRI. Is that right? Is that right? And how many go the other direction? Well, Bernie Sanders would have you think that all these Canadians would go and get to get cheap insulin or whatever. As as the Canadian government has just pointed out, that if 20% of Brit, of Americans tried to get drugs from Canada through drug importation, the Canadians would be out of drugs within six months. So, you know, the very few would actually go. Who wants to go and be on a, on a waiting list? Now, in some cases, if you're an American and you want to pay the full freight, then you might be able to get, you know, move to the top of the line. But it certainly doesn't work for Canadians. 33 weeks on average to have neurosurgery. If you thought you had a brain tumor, Dennis, would you want to wait 33 weeks for that for the, the um, MRI and the surgery in a specialist? <laughs> Would you, I, I, I'm speechless, obviously. It's, it's so, it so makes sense. People come here for medical care, including Canadians. By the way, you don't have to wait two days for an MRI. My, my wife wanted an MRI at 10 o'clock at night, thanks to capitalism. Right. She got an MRI for $400 the day she wanted it in the evening. Right. Back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. This all out. There's a part of my soul that wants to let go, wants to just run away. All right, everybody. Dennis Prager here with Sally Pipes, who was just uh, terrific. She's like a perfect guest. And I've had a lot of guests. False Premise, False Promise, her little book. I emphasize little because it makes it easier for you to read. The disease, Since I wrote a 500-page <laughs> book, <laughs> I plead guilty. <laughs> <laughs> the Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All, Sally Pipes. All right, so more questions. This is so, much, so many things to ask you. Uh, right now... What's the state of Medicare? In other words, if you want Medicare for all, let's say you, you want uh, apples for all, 
So the first question you ask is, are the apples good? Is Medicare good now? Well, we, Medicare became law in 1965 under Lyndon, President Lyndon Johnson and his great society. So this year it'll be, um, you know, 54 years old, 53 years old. Um, and, you know, at that time, the average American lived to age 65. Today, because of medicine and advancements and treatments, the average American lives to age 79. And so people that join Medicare at age 65 have been increasingly finding it difficult to get a doctor because doctors said, well, when you had your insurance, yes, that, that worked. But now that you're going to join Medicare, I'm paid 40% below for treating Medicare. So what did that mean? People got upset. We have Medicare Advantage and Medicare Supplemental Plans. And I think like 30-some percent of people who are Medicare eligible now have uh, Medicare Advantage plans, a private version. And that will cover, tops up what a doctor would charge because they're not going to take you if they're not if they're going to lose money on Sally or Dennis. Hospitals have announced will go out of business if the if the if the government controls healthcare. They have announced it. Right. And it has no impact on people who support it. I don't understand explain that to me. Right. Well, so um, hospitals will be paid a lot less too. And so a number of hospitals have said we will be going out of business. And in particular, rural hospitals will be the first to go out of business, making it more difficult for people in rural communities. Uh, well, they're to get Republican usually, so yeah, that well, doesn't matter. But the, to, to get um, good care. And so... Um, we need to we need to let people know that their their hospital, which uh, you know, as you know, Americans that don't have coverage turn up at emergency rooms and get uncompensated care. No one can be denied care in this country because of that. But we need between doctors and hospitals, it's going to be a disaster. The American Association of Medical Colleges has just come out and said, by 2032, we will have a shortage of 122 thousand doctors and that's before we even worked in if the government fully took over the health care system and why is that because doctors will um, quit medicine which we've seen under obamacare a lot of docs have quit medicine because of the paperwork the regulation electronic health records my own doctor here in pasadena has a room full of files he doesn't do ehr even though the law says you have to do each ehr a lot of docs just what said was that electronic health, health record? records mm-hmm. even uh, my husband's doctor quit medicine a year ago. He said he just couldn't take having to do all the paperwork and filing um, that are, were made under 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 Obamacare. So you know, doctors will retire early. Some doctors will go into other professions. Maybe maybe come in, go into healthcare, new innovative approaches to healthcare. But as I say, the best and brightest kids are not going to go into medicine if the government is going to determine how they practice medicine, how they're going to be paid for what they do, and the fact that. The best, the best will be paid the same as the the, doc, the doctor or specialist who's the worst. I have, uh, Sally, I have said frequently that when I visit a hospital, either visit somebody or because I needed attention, uh, and you saw the doctors parking, I wanted to see luxury cars. Yes. I don't want to see Toyotas in the doctor's parking lot. Right, ex- exactly. And so we want doctors that are that are good. We want them to be well paid, to be incentivized under under our market based system to have the best and brightest doing surgeries and things. You don't want somebody you know who's going to do a terrible job and then you have to go back and, you've, and you're in pain. This is this is something we want to keep uh, this market alive, and we don't want the government to take over. Healthcare, as Bernie Sanders, you know, says, healthcare is a right. I want, I want well, 11 deal million with that, illegals. Right, you deal with the right issue. We will. One eight Prager seven seven six. If you are for Medicare for all, I'd particularly like you to uh, raise a question. Sally Pipes. Her book is up at DennisPrager.com. The Dennis Prager Show. Hello, everybody. Dennis Prager here with Sally Pipes. My uh, my go-to person on healthcare matters. Her just published book is about Medicare for all: false premise and false promise. Actually, I added the word "and." False premise, false promise. Sally Pipes. It's up at DennisPrager.com. She is the president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute. So we're talking obviously about Medicare. And what it means. You have a chapter, then I want to take calls. You have a chapter that it's not a right. 
I've never understood that notion, it's a right. Food is a right, as I said to you all during the break. And I've said to my audience, why doesn't the government give us free food? Why do they stop at health care? Right. And well, I mean, we can't live without food. So, I mean, but right, exactly. Senator, um, Senator Bernie Sanders has been really pushing the idea that health care is a human right. And, um, you know, health care, um, it's a good and a service. It, like all goods and services, it's um, necessarily scarce. Declaring a right to health care, i.e. green lighting the unlimited demand for health care, it won't you know, miraculously um, provide unlimited supply to meet the meet the demand. Does does government? You know, w- would government would if it were a human right? Would we have the right to top notch health care, or would we have the right to for it to have just equal care? Would the government have to ban all private uh, insurance? Yes, it would under what Bernie Sanders wants. And um, if I have the right to health care, does government have the right to tell me how I have to remain healthy? Do I waive the right to, um, um, if I'm a smoker or, I'm, or if I'm obese? You know, in the, under the National Health Service in the UK now, patients are only eligible for certain procedures if they lose weight or they quit smoking. But this would mean the government would be determining. <laughs> That's mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, how large that right would be. And, and Bernie Sanders says 11 million illegal immigrants would have the right uh, to free health care, too. And as we said earlier, it's not free. The tax burden will be huge. Long waits, ration care, much higher taxes. The average Canadian family today, Dennis, pays $13,311 a year in hidden taxes for a system that rations care and puts you on a waiting list. You know, when pe- people here on the left say it's not right that an American should pay $400 a month for health care. Well, Canadians are paying over $1,000 a month for Medicare for all, and they get terrible care. Well, by the way, I, I, I think people need to be intellectually honest. Even, if they, even the ones who want Medicare for all but will allow private health care, clearly the private health care will be superior because you'll be able to pay for it. So then they will say, that's not fair. The rich have better health. Then we have to make it equal, and then they will end private health care. Right, exactly. And, you know, if you look at the um, Kaiser Health News polling on Medicare for All, last spring, 59% of the people they polled supported single payer. Now it's down to 53%. So maybe we're having an impact explaining to people what it means when the government Well, tell everybody the American Medical Association vote. So at the American Medical Association, which the man on the street thinks every doctor belongs to the AMA, and in fact, only 20% of docs belong to the American Medical Association. But in their summer meeting in Chicago last June, it was the closest vote ever. 47% of the doctors polled said they supported Medicare for all, 53% against. So that's the closest um, it's ever been. But that's only among 20% of the doctors, and they tend to be the activists. Right, they tend to be young doctors. I mean, there's a whole, the Physicians for National Health Insurance is a big part of the American Medical Association. That's the single payer group. And now within the AMA, there is a student group called Students for National Health Insurance. But I think that a lot of the, the docs within the AMA, a lot of them are, are women who want to, you know, have a family and do, do both. A lot of them, um, are, are, you know, young people who want to get a certain amount, want to get a salary. 49% of graduating specialists, Dennis, now join hospitals. They're not going into small group. They're not going into individual uh, practice. So a lot of the specialist docs are, you know, they have their own associations now. So they don't belong to the AMA, the American Association of Neurosurgeons, the American Association of um, Orthopedic Surgeons. But, you know, this is this is frightening. But under the under the AMA, we've got this big growing group that are supporting Medicare for all, and it's it's very worrying. Yes, it is. All right, let's see what you folks have to uh, say here. Mark in Detroit. Hello, Mark. Dennis, God bless you. We appreciate you in Detroit a lot. Thank you. And uh, I just wanted want to tell you a story so uh, awful. Uh, my brother-in-law uh, delivers steel, uh, big <laughs> big tractor loads of it. And he was unloading a, a load in Canada when something slipped and it hit him in the jaw. And he asked uh, the guys there where he could go for help. And they said, if at all possible, get home. Wow. Isn't that terrible? 
Well, it's it's very illustrative an anecdote to what Sally Pipes was saying. Well, and also, if you read the Globe and Mail, what we used to call the probe and flail, Canada's national newspaper, you will see um, neurosurgery, MRI clinics, um, CT, um, um, clinics that do PET scans, CT scans. They advertise um, in the Canadian newspapers, and it'll say you can get an MRI within one day, and they have a huge business of Canadians because of these long waiting times. Yes, exactly. What's the story? Uh, explain to people the story on why everybody else gets our drugs cheaper than we do. So America is where all of the new research and development, the innovation in the latest drugs, the latest biologics, you know, the the um, the the, um, the 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 latest cancer drugs, um, stroke drugs, all of these things are developed in the United States by American pharmaceutical companies. And of course, a lot of those pharmaceutical companies are companies that are based in in the UK or in France, Roche, um, GlaxoSmithKline. The reason they do their R&D in this country is because we don't have price controls. Most drugs don't make it to the market. They don't get through the the clinical trials, through the FDA. But if they do, then we um, they're available. Countries like Canada have price controls, and a lot of the drugs that we sell to them at a lower price aren't available there. Yeah, we'll be back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everybody. I should have three hours with you, Sally Pipes. The book, False Premise, False Promise, about Medicare for All. What's the pre-existing condition issue? Well, under... Under Obamacare, of course, um, people were not able, you couldn't deny, an insurer could not deny you coverage if you had a pre-existing condition. And you couldn't charge more than three times as much for someone who was, you know, had a pre-existing, was older, whatever. I think that the Democrats um, won the House back in 2018 over the issue of pre-existing conditions. I think the Republicans really let us down by not explaining the whole issue of pre-existing conditions. The Democrats said 120 million Americans have pre-existing conditions and they're going to be out on the street. There are actually only about 6 million people who are in the private market who have pre-existing conditions. Most people with pre-existing have employer-sponsored coverage and they get great coverage and they get great care. So, I mean, I think what I think the the and Tom, Dr. Tom Price, who was in the House and also um, was secretary of HHS for a very short time. What we think is on the issue of pre-existing conditions that the federal government should have given each of the, pro- the states a certain amount of money um, that would allow them to set up high risk pools so that those people who have pre-existing conditions in the individual market could get affordable and good health care. It would take the pressure off young, healthy people who are having to pay to, pay to subsidize those, those people with pre-existing conditions. So that is an important point, and I, think that, I hope the Republicans come up with that again. The other point is that people should be able to buy insurance when they're young. As long as they keep the payments up every year, they can carry it forward, and they're going to be able to... That's <laughs> right. It's called individual responsibility. Yes. Exactly. It's like ask. It's like not getting life insurance, dying, and then the surviving spouse said, "Well, you know, there was a pre-existing death. So what?" Right. Or your house is burning down, and mm-hmm. so and you didn't have house let, insurance. Let get, so get. Let me get fire insurance now. That's exactly right. And uh, Matthew in Colorado Springs says that he spent nineteen thousand dollars on health insurance. Does that sound plausible? Well, I don't know anything about his... Um, no, no, not about him, but can one spend that much in health insurance? Well, I think one probably could. And, you know, the average... Under for Obamacare? Fam- an individual um, who has employer-sponsored coverage, the employer on an individual is paying this year about $15,000 uh, really? for, for, for your care. And, of course, people shouldn't be getting their care through their, through their employer. This yeah, was no a gift. kidding. Oh, it was a horrible one. The, the government all brought right. us into the mess. We got to do a part two. Is that all right with you? Yes. Did I work you too hard? No, I have to keep myself up and fit. You certainly are up and fit. False promise, false. False premise, false promise. Her book is up at DennisPrager.com. Thank you for all your work. Thank you.
Welcome to Next Round with the Pacific Research Institute. I'm your host, Rowena Ichon. In this podcast, Tim Anaya, PRI Senior Director of Communications, and I chat with PRI President and CEO Sally Pipes on her new book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. In her book, Sally makes a case against Medicare for All using evidence from government-run systems in Canada and the UK. She explains how single-payer healthcare makes a litany of promises it can't ever keep. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Next Round, Sally. Thank you. Delight to be back. Healthcare, I believe, is the number one policy issue facing the country for the 2020 election. So much to talk about. That's right. And you've got a new book out, False Premise, False Promise, which is your eighth book on healthcare. Uh, this one is focused on the problems of single payer. What was your goal when you wrote this book? Well, the goal was that single payer Medicare for all has become such a prominent policy posi- position among progressive Democrats. And I felt that while it's all hypothetical what Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, a lot of these people are saying about how single payer would mean there'd be no private insurance, that everybody would get the very best of of care and coverage. I thought it was important to use and give examples of single payer systems such as Canada, which completely outlaws, bans all private coverage for anything considered medically necessary, and the National Health Service, which covers about 90% of Brits. Tremendous problems with both of these systems, long waits, ration care, shortage, and it's not free. So I thought I have to educate Americans on what a single-payer system would really mean for Americans. And I think it's working, the, even the media, the op-eds, everything, because support um, in November was down for the second month for Medicare for All. Sally, you like to say that health care is like an onion. It has many layers, and as I know, as someone who doesn't do well cutting onions in the kitchen, many tearful moments. Indeed, if you look at it, health care is very complicated, and that's thanks most mostly to government's involvement in so many aspects of healthcare. Unfortunately, so many Americans are convinced that if government takes over healthcare, that costs would go down and everyone will have access to healthcare and maybe we'll have kittens and rainbows and puppies for everybody too. How do you break through this mindset in your new book? Well, I really point out how in a country like Canada, which has had a full, which had a full takeover of their healthcare system under the Canada Health Act since 1984, I really point out what this has meant for Canadians. For example, the average wait this year in Canada from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist, 20.9 weeks, the second longest wait time in history, and more than double the wait time back in 1993 when it was 9.3 weeks. Care is rationed. We can talk about how the elderly do not have access to care. Um, There's a shortage of doctors. One third of Canadians, about one million Canadians, are on a waiting list for some form of treatment. And, you know, there are so many examples of Canadians who've been denied care. Um, if you look at uh, Michael Buble, for example, when his son Noah in 2016 was diagnosed in Vancouver with liver with liver cancer, he did not stick around in Vancouver. They immediately went to Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where they had, as the crooner Buble said, the very best of doctors, the very latest of care. And today, their son Noah is cancer-free. So many people would not, in Canada, don't have that kind of access and and, and funding to do that. But it is important to know that 217,000 Canadians in 2017 left this country and went abroad, either to the U.S. or other countries, to get care where they felt the waiting time was just too long. I think one of the best chapters in in your book is the opening chapter where you tackle a philosophical question, is healthcare right? The left believes that it is, and and it's tough to try to counter their argument when they have compassion on their side. Discuss why healthcare is not a right in the in the clear thinking way you do in your chapter. Healthcare is a right is really the linchpin of the Democrat, the progressive Democrats, whether it's um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the member, of the, the first term member of the House from New York. She is the protege, of course, of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who is really, I think in America, the Pied Piper of single payer healthcare. And he, he I, it almost seems like he will have another stroke, another heart attack uh, when he talks about uh, Medicare for all. He's so passionate about it. He um, is the one who said, 
says over and over again that health care is a right, it's not a privilege, and it should be available for all Americans. Everyone should have the very best of care, the very, no referrals, no waiting times, no ration care, and of course it will be free. Health care is neither a right for the many or a privilege, privilege for the few. Health care is a good and a service. All goods and services have to be rationed, and health care is one, is one of those goods and services. Declaring a right to health care that is green lighting, essentially unlimited demand for health care, will not miraculously engender unlimited supply to meet that demand. It's also unclear as to what a right to health care would actually mean. Does it mean the right to the very best of care, or does it mean a right to equal care? If it's a right to equal care, would the government have the right to ban people from paying for better care? And under Sanders' plan and Pramila Jayapal, the House member, Senator Warren's plan, if she became president within three years, she would implement single payer. It would mean that people would not have any access to paying for private or better care because all private care would be outlawed. Does the right to health care come with any corresponding duties? If I have a right to health care, does the government have the right to tell me that I have to keep myself healthy? Do I waive that right if I'm a smoker or if I'm overweight? These aren't hypotheticals. In the UK, under the national health care system, which is 71 years old this year, patients are only eligible for certain procedures if they lose weight or they quit smoking. So how do we determine how large that right should be? Do we have a right to food? I mean, if we have a right to health care, it's more important that we have a right to food. We can't live without food. So I think we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want to open the market for health care so that everyone will have access to the most affordable, accessible, quality care. And going down the path to single-payer Medicare for all and saying health care is a right is going to be a disaster in terms of weights, ration care, lack of access to the latest uh, doctors and treatments. Sally, last fall, as some of our listeners may have seen, you participated in an Intelligence Squared debate in New York City on single payer. And you and Nick Gillespie of Reason, who was your debate partner, won that debate. And you managed to convince a tough, liberal New York City audience that single payer would be bad for the country. Uh, After the debate, some of the audience participants told you that your real-life stories of patients suffering under single payer helped your side of the debate win the night. Now, you've profiled many patients who are living under single payer throughout your book. Do you think that that will bolster your argument? I think stories today are the most important way to reach the American people. The American people, do they glaze their eyes glaze over when they hear that Senator Sanders' plan would, would increase federal spending by 30 to $40 trillion over 10 years. The total cost of health care would be $59 trillion over 10 years. People don't relate to numbers, but people do relate to stories. They do relate to the fact, as I mentioned about Michael Buble, how he was able to and could afford to take his son to a children's hospital in Los Angeles. You know, so many of these stories are heart-wrenching, but they do reach the man on the street. My own mother who passed away from colon cancer um, because as a senior care was rationed and she couldn't get a colonoscopy. She finally did get a colonoscopy six months later when uh, she was hemorrhaging. She did get a colonoscopy. She died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. I talked about in my book about Sharon Shemblaw, a mother of three from Ontario, Canada, who lost her battle with leukemia because Canadian hospitals lacked the resources to treat her. She could have survived with a stem cell transplant. By the time she got to the U.S., it was too late, and she passed away. In Great Britain, uh, Brett and Nagma King, they were thrown in jail in Spain for taking their six-year-old son there to receive advanced cancer treatment that he could not get under the uh, U.K. National Health Service. And of course, my favorite example is Rolling Stone frontman Mick Jagger, who at 70-something is still gyrating around on the stage. Er- earlier in 2019, he was diagnosed with having a heart valve problem. Um, he did not go back to the U.K., where he is from, and have it as replacement, valve replacement done there. He went to New York Presbyterian Hospital and had his heart valve replacement done immediately. And his brother, who's a couple of years younger in the UK, said, at least Mick has not got to wait in line for the National Health Service. Mick Jagger, like Michael Buble, they do have options. But for the average Canadian and the average Brit, this is not possible. So we have stories. We have to tell these stories. In Ontario, a doctor called in a referral recently to a local hospital to for to get a, a neurologic uh, an appointment with a neurologist, he was told there was a four and a half year wait to see a neurologist. A 16 year old boy in BC, where I'm from, waited three years for urgent surgery, during which time his, his condition.
condition deteriorated so much that he became a paraplegic. In Montreal, a man who had needed urgent heart surgery found out because of a severe problem that he would, was eligible for the surgery, but he had died three weeks earlier. All of these are examples of the Canadian healthcare system, the British healthcare system, which deny care because government has to set a budget that it's going to spend on healthcare. We spend 18% of our GDP on healthcare in America. It is expensive. We're an expensive country. Americans demand the best. Canada spends 11% of GDP on healthcare, but that's why the demand is much greater than the supply. So you see long waits and ration care, and of course, the fact that 217,000 Canadians go abroad when they think the waiting time is too long. Let's turn for a moment on the presidential primaries, uh, starting with Elizabeth Warren, who, because of her funny math on funding single-payer, has fallen in the polls. Lately, she's pulled back on single-payer, saying that a public option might be the way to go for the first few years, followed by a full-blown single-payer system. She's even pared back further, saying that she'd like to give Americans the choice. So clear this up for us. In a public option, Americans can choose to keep their private insurance or opt out for a government Medicare-style plan. For a lot of Americans, this, this sounds reasonable. Talk about the problems of a public option. Yeah, so a public option, which was in the original House version of Obamacare, would be a government insurance plan that would compete against private insurers. As Medicare for All has sort of declined in support, about 53% of Americans polled by Kaiser Family Foundation now support Medicare for All, down from a high of 59%. But the support for the public option or government plan is now up to 65%. So we've seen not Ber- not Senator Bernie Sanders, but certainly uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was one of Bernie's soulmates on Medicare for All. She's moved away as she's declined in the polls from t- supporting single-payer to supporting a public option. But a public option or government insurance plan is a stepping stone approach to single-payer. Senator Warren would never t- say in the debates how much her plan would cost. Finally, she got Don Berwick, former acting chief administrator in the Obama administration under the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They came up with the numbers. Finally, they announced that her plan would increase federal spending by $20.5 billion over 10 years, which is significantly lower than Sanders's $34 trillion over 10 years. So even economists on the left have said her number is low because she doesn't account for the fact that if people think health care is free, they would demand a lot more of it. So because she was declining in the polls, there was a lot of backlash against single payer. She decided to come out and have a stepping stone approach. In um, early November, she said, I'm going to support the public option that anyone could buy into a plan that would offer free coverage to children and families making at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. That's an income of about $51,000 a year. Americans who want government coverage could buy into the plan at very low cost. So she said if she became president in the first 100 days, this would be her plan, would be to allow people to buy into into, um, a public option. By her third year in office, she would fight for a full transition to single-payer Medicare for all. So this is just um, a way for her to get around the declining support for Medicare for all by using a stepping stone approach. She totally still believes in Medicare for all, and there's no question uh, that her plan would be even a lot more expensive and would probably come in at the numbers that I talked about, that Senator Sanders and and the RAND Corporation, Urban Institute, a liberal think tank, and the Mercatus Center have all come in. 30 to 40 trillion over 10 years increase in federal spending with a total cost of about 59 trillion dollars over 10 years. But this is just a ruse. Um, she's trying to compete with um, Vice President Joe Biden, who's been a supporter of uh, building on Obamacare and supporting the public option, and also um, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He is also a supporter of the public option. He says his plan would cost $1.5 trillion over 10 years. But he did provide a point by saying that if the public option was not getting everybody insured, he definitely too would go to Medicare for all. Sally, recently the House held hearings on single payer and part of the discussion on how to achieve universal coverage focused on the trade-off between access to care and keeping costs down. Well, kind of ironic that at the same time, the Fraser Institute in Canada announced that the median wait time for medically necessary treatment in Canada this year was 20.9 weeks, and that's the second longest wait time ever recorded since 1993 when Frazier started measuring wait times across Canada. You know, back then, patients waited it really was less than half the time at 9.3 weeks. Now, I think there's no better evidence
evidence than these wait times to show that what happens when Canada attempts to keep costs down. So given all of this, why do so many progressives in the House think it'll be any different here in the U.S.? Well, I think that progressives know that this this will that if, if we have a complete government takeover of our health care system, it will lead to long waits, ration care, lack of access to the latest treatments, doctor shortages, higher taxes, new taxes. All of these things are out there. You know, when Bernie Sanders gets up there on the podium and says, Canadian health care is free, he doesn't mention that the average Canadian family pays over $13,000 a year in hidden taxes to cover a system which results in these 20.9 on average waiting times from seeing a primary care doctor getting treatment by a specialist, care being rationed, particularly by the elderly. He doesn't mention that Canada ranks 29th out of 33 high-income countries in terms of doctors per thousand population, that Canada has one half as many specialists as there are available in the U.S. on a per capita basis. He doesn't mention that 3% of the population, 1 million Canadians, are on a waiting list waiting for treatment. Uh, He doesn't uh, mention that that in Canada there are 35% fewer acute care beds available per capita and that access to MRIs, 25% fewer in Canada than in in the U.S. And actually Canada has fewer MRIs per capita than Turkey, Chile, and Latvia. So think about that. This is what this would mean for America. And there's no question all of these things would happen in the United States. I think the real issue here is that people like Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, their whole goal is for government to make decisions in our lives and that we as Americans are not capable of making decisions. They have a view of America where government is in charge of everything. And so it's part of their long-term goal, free education, free health care, free medical training for medical students. All of these things are part of their grand strategy of making us a fully socialist country. So Sally, when weighing all sides of the debate, what do you think will be the ultimate outcome? Do you think that the Democrats will nominate one of the pro-single-payer candidates or one of the so-called moderates who want to offer a public option or a a more limited-type Medicare plan? Well, it's very interesting, as we've seen in the debates, how health care has really been the number one issue. In previous years and previous debates, health care was not a big issue. And as we saw, you know, in the early debates, uh, Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, they all said, oh, we're for for Medicare for all, and this is going to be the be-all and the end-all for America. Well, as we saw, uh, Kamala Harris has dropped out of the race. I think she kept flip-flopping on whether she supported single-payer or didn't, and I think she really got beaten up and, and couldn't raise money, and so she had to drop out. As we've seen, Senator Warren sort of backed off full Medicare for all to a stepping stone approach to Medicare for all. Senator Sanders, of course, is never going to back off his um, single-payer Medicare for all. But it's going to be very interesting. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, of course, has said, as she said in Rolling Stone magazine, Medicare for all, that's going to cost a lot. How are we going to pay for all of that? Although just recently she did come out and say, well, I guess we need to hear all sides. Uh, Maybe Medicare for all will be the ultimate goal. But I think the Democrats have a huge problem right now between the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the more moderate wing, the Joe Biden, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, their their options. So I don't know where this is going to end up. But right now, Senate, since Harris dropped out, Warren is dropping. We've seen uh, Senator Sanders, you know, increasing uh, his support in the in the polling for the Iowa caucuses, which are coming up. So I think if they do, you know, choose someone like Senator Sanders, it's going to be just like in the UK, where um, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was completely wiped off the map in the recent British election and uh, Boris uh, Johnson had a tremendous uh, victory in that election. So I think the American people would definitely reject um, Senator Sanders and his very liberal progressive ideas. But that'll be up to the Democrats to decide what line they want to take, more progressive or more moderate. So we'll see as this um, unfolds. But I think the Republicans have to come up with a plan showing, well, they don't support Medicare for all in the public option, what they do support. And that's part of my book, Solutions to How do we achieve affordable, accessible, quality care for all Americans. 
Let's stay on that topic of the Republicans in health care and take a look at President Trump's health care agenda. You know, looking at it, you know, he's proposed some solid reforms, but he's also come up with some pretty bad ideas, too. So maybe you could give your thoughts on first the bad and end on a positive note with the good. And on balance, what grade would you give President Trump on health care? President Trump is very kind of him. He does often quote me when he on his Twitter account and also in um, on Facebook which is very nice, you know, on things that I write about, but he doesn't agree with everything that that I support. On the bad side, I mean, on December the 18th, they introduced the rule, the proposed rule and the proposed guidance on importing drugs uh, from Canada to relieve our expensive drug problem. And of course, I've written a lot on that. Canada cannot be the drugstore for the United States. If 20% of Americans got their drugs from Canada, within six months, Canada would have no drugs left for Canadians. So this is not going to work. President Trump and others in the U.S. do not talk about the fact that a lot of the drugs that are available here, where all of the research and development innovation goes on, um, they don't talk about the fact that in a country like Canada, Britain, France, all these countries have price controls. So they free ride off American innovation. But what what is interesting is that many of the drugs that we have here, the biologics, the high-end drugs, are not even available in these countries. In Canada, the patented medicines prices review board decides what drugs are going to come in. My own uncle passed away from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2003. Um, At the time, the new drug for NHL in this country was called Rituxan. It had been approved by the FDA in 1997, but even in Canada by 2003, it was still too expensive for the government to approve. The head of the cancer agency in Vancouver suggested to my cousin, who's a doctor, well, just take him down to Seattle, go to the Fred Hutchison Clinic and pay out of pocket. Well, as anyone knows, that's not, it's easier said than done and when you're not well to take a long trip. So a lot of the latest drugs aren't available. They're t- still too expensive. The, under the new um, U.S.-Mexico-Canada free trade agreement, there is a section in there which is very worrying. And Trump, of course, is, just doesn't seem to understand that if you take away the 12-year data exclusivity for these high-end biologic drugs that are developed in America and allow um, Canada, Britain, other countries to deal the patent, um, it's going to result in far fewer new drugs being developed in this country and the latest drugs that are there. So that is a big problem within the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, which of course doesn't have free trade in the title. Other things that are um, that I think are bad are the, in addition to drug importation, the um, international price index idea where Trump wants dr- certain cancer drugs to be tied to an average of prices in 14 countries that have price controls, that this is also um, a disaster for, for America and for innovation. On the good side, he did a couple of executive orders, three, three or four executive orders that are very good. One, of course, is the um, short-term limited duration plans, which Obama had said they could only be available for a short period of time, um, which before Obamacare, they were available for a year. So the executive order under President Trump allows people to buy a short-term plan for up to 12 months, renewable for up to three years. And the plans that are offered in the short-term plans do not have to include Obamacare's very expensive 10 essential health benefits. So that is very good, particularly for younger people who don't want a plan that covers all of these mandates. They want a plan if they're self-employed, whatever. So STLDs are very good. The Association Health Plans, which was the executive order, which allows small businesses to group together and get a better rate on plans, allows small businesses and industries to group together. Very good idea. His health reimbursement accounts, those are very good ideas for giving people options to get health savings accounts. And then, of course, he had a good idea on price transparency, but I think that's not going anywhere. So those are all um, good ideas under the Trump administration, but I think um, there are some um, gaps in his knowledge. I guess I would give him, as of today, perhaps a C plus. I'm, I'm, I don't believe in grade inflation. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Sally, you head up PRI's healthcare team, which includes uh, Wayne Weingarten working on drug policy and Dr. Henry Miller focusing on medicine and science. Uh, what are some of the team's projects for 2020? Well, in 2019, we set up the Center for Medical Economics and Innovation. Wayne Weingarten is heading that up, doing a lot of work, um, important work on the pricing of drugs, how drugs are priced, how drugs become available, and on ICER, which is like the British National Health, the British National Health Services um, NICE program, which would really be a very, if we got an ICER type plan, it would ration drugs and ration innovation in this country. So Wayne will be exposing a lot of the false promises 
is under under an ICER type plan. So he's going to be doing a lot of that. There's a tremendous amount of work to be done and education of the American people on drug pricing, drug availability, and of course, moving to a price control system. Um, Dr. Henry Miller, who is an MD, founder of the FDA's Biotech Center several years ago, he does a lot of work on junk science, on vaccines, really pointing out why vaccines are so important for young people and keeping down childhood diseases in particular that were virtually eliminated, such as whooping cough, which now uh, is on the rise because a number of parents think that vaccines cause autism, even though there is no scientific evidence that that is the case. So Henry will continue to do work on vaccines, on intellectual property issues, and my focus will continue to be on my healthcare book, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All, Educating American People, Pointing Out the Problems with Medicare for All, continuing my weekly column for foxnews.com on all of these important issues, educating Americans, my bi-weekly columns for forbes.com and for the Washington Examiner's blog, Beltway Confidential. So a lot going on. As I say, this will be, I think, the most important issue for voters in the 2020 election. And we have to hope that we at PRI are able to do a good job educating Americans on why these programs and plans would be disastrous and why we need choice. Universal coverage can be achieved through universal choice. Americans have always loved choice in everything. We need choice in healthcare so people can get the kinds of plans and coverage that suits their needs and those of their families. Thanks so much, Sally. What about the wine? (laughs) (laughs) Special thanks to Sally Pipes. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and subscribe to PRI's podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And please do us a favor and give us five stars. You can also listen to our podcast on PRI's YouTube page, youtube.com slash Research one That's a number one. Thanks for listening. I'm Rowena Itchon. Please come back again for our next round with PRI.